I'm Charles Coplin, and you are listening to Songscapes, a production of Sustain Music and Nature. My guest, Eric Lichter, is a multi-instrumentalist, singer, songwriter, producer, and engineer who works out of a log cabin perched high above the Connecticut River. Well, the dirt floor story in short, which is still long, is actually, um, I started uh, the studio in 2006 uh, in earnest. Um, I, you know, I had some people that were really into some of the music that I was making on my own. I played all the instruments on it, and it was a very ragtag, uh, very homespun, you know, sort of Neil Young Harvest kind of a sound. And this would be about 2004, and it was before the big resurgence of a lot of that kind of music. <clears throat> you know, which was still a few years out. And I really didn't, it, it, it wasn't a plan. You know, I, it was sort of an accidental thing because I made a record of my own called Corduroy just because I felt compelled to. And musical friends, uh, you know, from New York to Boston and beyond uh, caught wind of the album and they were like, listen, can you do this for me? And at the time I was living in New York City and I had a little studio um, set up in the, a basement of my parents' house uh, on the shoreline in Connecticut. It was a very ragtag, rinky-dink kind of stereo studio, but it it was effective in doing what I needed to do. And that's kind of how it started. And, and it was destroying one album after another, you know, because you have to... I think Stephen Stills said something, and he may have stolen it, but I just know it from Stephen Stills, is that I think you have to put in 10,000 hours of something before you can call yourself, you know, a professional. Yeah, now we're giving credit to that these days to Malcolm Gladwell, but Steve Stills probably predated Malcolm Gladwell, so I, I don't I don't know where it came from. Whoever but came it up seems with to it, be the axiom. It, it became you know that thing in my mind where you know it took many many years for me to ever you know want to wear that wear that hat. You know what I mean? I you know I needed to feel you know it, it sort of flies in the face with the things that are going on today where it's instant gratification. You know, people online calling themselves, you know, influencers or this, that and the other thing without really putting the legwork in. So for me, it was a lot of legwork. So you mentioned Neil Young. What's exciting for me talking to you today is you do many, many things well, but it seems like primarily these days you love being in the studio. You love recording, which is so interesting. And one thing that you referenced, I was reading about with Neil Young, is the imperfection of Harvest. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the beauty of the imperfection in the work that you do? Yeah, you know, I look at uh, the beauty as, or the imperfection is the beauty mark. It's the thing that makes it truly unique. Um, and a lot of those records, Harvest and um, is certainly one, but Tom Waits, and there are certainly you know, artists nowadays doing the same thing, a lot of them. Um, and, and I think those are the people that I gravitate towards because that's where you're getting the essence of who they are. If it's perfect and so completely polished, you're not, you're not getting any idea of who the person really is. And I think that's why even kids, you know, teenagers, I have a 13 year old and, you know, she loves Joni Mitchell but she also loves Billie Eilish and some of the newer, younger kids. But um, it's why a lot of that stuff remains because uh, there's uh, that human element that is so completely intact. 
even if somebody doesn't necessarily know why they love it. So if you talk, if, if you were to talk to somebody now about this and, you know, they were to answer the question, they might only now be able to put those dots together. Like, oh yeah, it's that human, I'm getting the essence of Tom Petty or Stevie Nicks voice. You know, I think people have lost a lot of people in the, you know, major sort of, you know, um, consumer that's buying music and watching American Idol, if that's even a thing. They, you know, music has gone away and entertainment has taken its place in the on the bigger picture. And that's, anyway, long answer longer. That, that was well, why. I love that answer because that's why I think the Wildflowers released box set this year where you hear all of the demos that Tom Petty did. They're better that's than so the album. Well, because he makes the imperfections. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great piece. Um, so talking about, you know, the humanity of it all, um, you collaborate with, with Steve. Can you introduce us to Steve and talk a little bit about um, how you guys work together? Uh, Steve Whitus, who is my chief engineer. Um, I was sort of, I wouldn't say I was floundering, but I definitely needed in 2013, I, I needed to um, sh sort of shed my skin and, and grow. Um, and I was working anal in the analog realm primarily up to that point, but I was encountering a lot of problems because my workflow was increased. It was increasing. And the there's a, 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 the cost of tape, even in 2013, was really astronomical. You know, you'd get about 15 minutes or so, depending on the speed you would run the tape machine, you'd get 15 minutes, maybe one or two passes of a song. And if an album had 10 songs on it, you were into it for quite a few reels of tape. And that adds up. And it was preventing me from being able to work with artists all over the world. And I really wanted to start to do that, create instrumental pieces and produce. It was a, a revenue stream for me that I uh, had not tapped into. And I try to think with a business mind, in addition to the musician side. And I know we'll talk a bit, I would love to talk about Harrison and Parsons Field at some point too. I know that, you know, you know they're important in, the, in my story, my personal story. But you have to, to be an artist, that's a great thing, but you also have to have something planted firmly in reality, like how to make a living and how to have a family and how to be able to make it work for you instead of having your, you know, um, Having, having dreams is great, but having a way to actually make them come true and, and work hard for them is another thing. Um, what, was the, what was the question? I was asking you how you collaborate with Steve. Oh, so I anyway, also, Steve. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I, if you have more to say, I want to hear it. What I was going to do is, you know, you talked about that you also want to talk about Harrison and they'll come so. in a bit, but uh, I back on the Steve thing. So Steve factors in quite uh, in the perfect, at the perfect time. So I went to Steve's studio when I was a teenager, he had a studio and I think he hated me when I was a kid. He's, he's a, he's a very gruff character. He's lovable, but you have to get to know him. And I'm a very easygoing. Um, I love everybody, you know, but he's been Good in a cop, bad cop. It is a good cop, and that's how it's looked at. And uh, we don't work every project together. Um, he's got a whole other life, and he works, you know, he works in um, like corporate, um, like corporate media. He does television and, and 
and things of that nature. But it is good cop, bad cop, and he's a bad cop that's actually still a good cop. But he's been at it. He's older than me, and he's been at it a long while, and he just doesn't have time to, you know, he, he has very little patience, shall we say. But he's a wonderful, wonderful person, and he's a brilliant at what he does. So in 2013, uh, he was way out of the game. He was working for ESPN, and I needed somebody to master my records, somebody closer to, to where I was uh, geographically. Not that that was really important. I could mail the stuff out, and we can send it through files, but I wanted to have something completely in-house where... You know, you come in, you make your album, it's all mixed and mastered, and then from there it goes to where it has to go. So I dragged Steve kicking and screaming back into the studio world because he had left. And then after that, he dragged me kicking and screaming into Pro Tools and sort of the digital way of recording. And I'm slow. Change for me comes very slow, and he teases me constantly. You know, uh, for years he was like, he was like, you need to get a new drum set. And I loved my drum set. It was that very Harvest or Levon Helm. It was, it was a perfect drum set for me, but I needed to have a drum set that was going to be good for, you know, modern, you know, Americana and modern folk pop as well. It couldn't just sound like crap, according to him. So after years, I did end up getting a drum set. So when I listen to him, we'll go, drums. Remember that time? You got those drums that time. So it's been really, it's been an amazing thing with him. And that's so how So Steve happened. is your anchor. I got to ask this. I, we don't have to go into much of a left turn here, but just because of my background, what I'm, I'm guessing he was an audio engineer at ESPN? In audio, yeah. he does, And he does some location. So he'll go to, you know, HGTV does something and he'll go on location for HGTV. And he's working at the WWE now, which is the wrestling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're down in Stanford. And I know he does stuff with the Yankees and... You know, he's he's always busy. So for for him, this is a hobby, even though it isn't a hobby. And for me, this is my life. You know, it's my every day. All right. So enough enough about Steve, because this is your life and, and we, we've given him enough love. So um, we this is a podcast that talks about music and nature and the relationship between the two. Your studio is located in a very bucolic setting. I. I the, I'm going to give you the easy answer here. I'm going to ask you not to say the easy answer because it could be in your mind. It could be external. What is your happy place? It's here. My happy place is I here. I knew you were going to say that. Well, you know, I, well, here's, it's funny that you say that because, uh, you know, I have uh, my Instagram and uh, just this morning I shared this picture. I came up the driveway and it just was looking so fine. You know, it, the sky was blue and it had these beautiful clouds and the Connecticut River flows right behind it. And it was just a perfect thing. And I'm still so inspired by this place, which was my home. It was only my home for a long time. I moved the studio in here in 2015, remarried a few years later, and now it's essentially the studio. But I'm, you know, I'm the sense of wonder is still with me. Like before we connected, I noticed that the would-bees have returned. Now, the would-bees return every year at the same time, and this house is enveloped in would-bees. They're harm harmless little. They just bump into each other and, you know, do a lot of damage. But they haven't eaten their way into the house yet, and it's been here for 40-something years. So for me, it's like, you know, spring is, only really truly arrives when I see, like, the first would-be. And they're flying. They're right there. I can hear them. So it's like a really 
uh, incredibly happy, wonderful place to be. And it's my own little caribou ranch, Colorado. There's my Colorado connection. Yeah, and I, I've also heard it's been compared to Shangri-La or yeah. Big Pink. And so yeah. when an artist comes into your studio, what is it that you think beyond your talents, Steve's talents, the hardware, what is this sort of energy that you think is is part of when an artist comes in with their material to, to where you are? Well, I'll take you through it. Uh, before an artist even sets foot in here, there's a conversation. You know, we have a conversation, whether it's a, a phone call or um, they come in and we meet. I, I usually like to get together with somebody here and have a meeting if I can, unless they're an artist that's coming from, you know, um, you know, the West Coast. Um you know, we'll uh, we'll have a phone conversation, or we'll have several to where we start to feel chummy, you know, and, and a connection. But when they come in, even if it's just a meeting, they get a feel immediately. Nobody cares about equipment. None of the artists that I work with or have ever worked with care care about what kind of mixing board I'm using or we're using, or what kind of preamps we've got. It, it really has nothing to do with that. It's about uh, the feeling that they get when they're in a space to record. And as an artist myself, I know that if I'm in a place that just feels a little sterile or antiseptic, I'm not going to do my best. No matter how much I, I try to psych myself out to do it, I'm, I'm just not. And this house has an incredible energy. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that the family that lived in this house for 40-something years raised their, um, their children here. And they're an incredible family, and they actually live up at the top of the hill in a, in a big renovated version of this. This house sat for a number of years until, you know, before I found it. And I'm very close with them, and they're, they're incredible people. Like, it makes sense to me why people love this place, because their energy is everywhere in this house. So you not only, you know, record albums and stuff there, you do a lot of videos, your YouTube channel's great, it's very active. Um, and you also do something which I really like called the Dirt Floor Minute. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that I'm going to give Steve full credit on that. Now, that what that actually is, is um, we've been working on a documentary film, a Dirt Floor documentary. And we stopped right before, um, you know, March of last year for obvious reasons. Um, we put it on the back burner, but it's intended to be a full movie. And so what we did from that movie was take some of the outtakes and small, small bits and turn them into dirt floor minutes, which I felt was an incredible thing because I don't want to talk about what I do, but I love hearing other people talk about it or their experience. You know what I mean? And We've actually got some great contributions from, you know, Tape Op Magazine, which is the premier recording magazine in the world. It's my favorite. Um, the editor-in-chief, Larry Crane, did the intro to the film. Uh, he did this narration at the beginning. So to have him be a part of it was really great. Right now, the movie's on hold. I don't know what's happening with it. I'm not in a hurry for it. But I like having the Dirt Floor Minutes out there. And we'll probably stick with that. It seems to be something that people like. And it's a, a nice business card, in a sense. You can find Dirt Floor Minutes on YouTube under Dirt Floor Recordings. Check it out. Back with more of Eric Lichter after this message from Sustain. 
I'm Betsy. And I'm Harrison. We're the co-founders of Sustain Music and Nature. Sustain is a nonprofit that makes music a force for nature. By tapping into the emotional power of music and cultural sway of artists, we engage new audiences with their environment. Check out Sustain Music and Nature on social media to see our public land music videos and learn about upcoming concerts in the great outdoors. I'm Charles Coplin, and you're listening to Songscapes. My guest Eric Lichter and I spoke about the influence of family on music. I was fortunate. My parents, uh, my mom could carry a tune very well. My dad uh, was great. Uh, he was, is, they're both still very much here. Um, a great visual artist. Loved Peter Max, you know, uh, psychedelic art and uh, taught graphic arts later on. And we just always had music around the house. And we always had, um, you know, things like uh, albums like Dan Fogelberg's Home Free album, that first one with his own rendering. Those things left a huge impression on me. The first Crosby, Stills and Nash record, um, even things like Seals and Crofts, Diamond Girl, you know, I, could, I have an encyclopedic mind and I can tell you who played on what and how like Graham Nash sang on this Art Garfunkel album and Art Garfunkel sang on this Crosby, you know, like how these pieces went together. And I was like every other kid my age at the time going through, you know, the 80s, listening to the stuff, you know, that was happening. And I liked a lot of it. Uh, I still listen, uh, you know, to Iron Maiden and, you know, I don't like Poison. I never liked Poison. But like some of that stuff, I still like, you know, it's just the stuff that really stuck with me uh, was just so happened to be in my parents' collection because and they were playing it all the time. I, the first thing I remember was hearing Elton John, Someone Saved My Life Tonight in the back of my parents' car. And. I'm, I'm going to just go off on this for a minute because it was profound. And I was little, little, little. I think I was four or five. But that song, you know that. Everybody knows that song. You know, Someone Saved My Life Tonight. Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. Number one album in, I believe, 1975, right? Caribou Ranch. Recorded at Caribou. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, so that song in the very last verse, it's, it's sort of about right before the last chorus. It's I would have walked head on to the deep end of the river, clinging to your stocks and bonds. Ba, ba, ba. That last chorus comes in and it feels a little different. This thing, this instrument called an arp string ensemble comes in only there and stays throughout the song. So as a little kid, I'm like, what is that crazy? Like there's this little single note, but it for some reason started this thing in me this little synthesizer that just hits this one note and it was maybe then that i started to put together things like dynamics like how if you add this one thing it's going to change this entire thing and come to find out that i guess gus dudgeon hated that instrument because you know they would hire real strings and he was like well we could afford real strings why use this wooden box and that instrument was prevalent on a lot of records of that era. And I have one here, I use it all the time. Um, but that that was like my moment. And I was little, like, a, you know, it was before I discovered listening to Kiss or, you know, any of the other stuff that tortured my parents. So tell me a little bit about where you went from there with your music. Like, how, how did you start to manifest what you were hearing into first your adolescence and then your yeah. early professional life? 
well, you know, like most other kids my age, I took up the guitar. We had bands and, you know, we would have, um, we put bands together with people that were, you know, like my friends who were all athletes and jocks, you know, they were like, well, I could play a bass. Nobody could really play anything, but we learned how to play Can't Explain by The Who. The easiest songs, like, let's do this. And it kind of stuck with me. And I had a really wonderful teacher, uh, Mr. DeLucia. And he was the one that really, uh, he heard my singing voice and really kind of, um, kind of pushed me to pursue it more because I, you know, again, I hung out with these, you know, these kids that were all athletes, you know, and the last thing I wanted to do was what, you know, it was be a nerd and do like nerdy stuff, which was singing a chorus or whatever. And he was, he was like, listen, you have a talent, you know, you should focus on this. And I did, I went, I went through things like all state, which in the state of Connecticut was like the farthest you can get met you were at the top of your, you know, of your thing with whatever thing you were doing. And I happened to be a, a, apparently a very good singer and he pushed me into it. So at that point I started to write songs and listen to like, you know, again, like uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash and Jackson Brown and stuff like that and redo their songs on four track. So that's how I learned how to kind of do that stuff. And it just kind of stuck with me. And then from there, you know, there was no question what I was going to do in high school, I knew. You mentioned Jackson Brown and some of the others. You also on your YouTube channel, you do some great covers. You can do, you do you can still change your mind by Tom Petty, which is just yeah. a beautiful song. Thanks, man. You did something with your wife, a Jackson Brown cover, which she'll appreciate I that. Thought was yeah. absolutely beautiful. I think it was Human Touch. So, how Thank how you. do you choose your covers and and the arrangements? Well, those two covers in particular, I started to do them actually about a year ago. I started with uh, uh, David Gates and Bread with um, um, Everything I Own. And it was when everything was shutting down and I needed to hone my chops and I wanted to dig deeper into my abilities, knowing that I was going to be sort of um, out of business for a little while. I wanted to, to see how deep my well went, you know, because when you're working every day, you don't really have the time to keep digging. you got to almost play it safe. So doing those covers was a way for me to stretch and really uh, find out what kind of musician I really truly was, maybe. So it started with the bread tune. But the Petty song was for a benefit a friend of mine, Dylan Seavey, put together in East Nashville. Brought together all kinds of great artists, uh, Langhorn Slim, and you know, on and on and on. He's just one, but uh, so many incredible, incredible people that I really enjoy. So he wanted me to do a version of, uh, you know, m what song would I do? And I picked You Can Still Change Your Mind because it's the least Tom Petty song of that Tom Petty probably has. It's almost Beach Boys-ish in its arrangement. Um, the way the piano and the bass play together, it's a very un-Tom Petty song. And it was a challenge to do. Anyway, Dylan chose that. And my wife uh, actually chose uh, Human Touch to do. And we're actually going to do the dimming of the day. She messaged me this morning and said, you know, she wants to do the dimming of the day. And she's a nurse anesthetist. So she doesn't get to do this with her life. So it's nice for us to be able to come together and do these things and have somebody, you know, like yourself, take notice of it. She yeah, no, you it. sound great together. And what I like about your choices, um, if you go back, for instance, to you can change, still change your mind. Like an album cut off hard promises is just, you know, the, the fact that you're 
I mean, the bread song is obviously a pretty well-known hit. There's nothing yeah. wrong with doing hits, but I, th- I just think I thought your song choices were really interesting. Thanks, man. I, uh, I knew doing the bread tune that it was going to be very obvious. And then I also, after that, I did, um, I did Lido Shuffle. Now, I did Lido Shuffle because, I mean, that song is impossible and it's got Jeff Percaro on drums and I'm no Jeff Percaro. So I wanted to dig as deep as I could and really, you know, see if I could do it. And we did. You know, it took a little bit of um, a lot of work, I should say. And then we did a Gary Wright song, um, Love is Alive, which we did also, which utilizes those synthesizers that I was talking about. and then it's just been, you know, doing, working on my own stuff. I did a Stephen Stills song called um, Do For The Others, Dan Fogelberg song. I, I can't run from my influences. I don't really try. Uh, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's, I'm proud of them. And I don't think enough people know, I, I, people know who Dan Fogelberg is for sure. But there are certainly a lot of people who don't, or they're like, oh, that's the, you know, the leader of the band guy. And I'm like, wait a minute, that guy was a blazing musician, smoking guitar player, songwriter, you know, when you had to really dig deep, you know, and work for it. He's, he, he's one of them for me. He so might be I, my favorite. Wow. That's yeah, he big. might. Yeah. You don't usually hear Dan Fogelberg as a No, you favorite. don't. But I'm going to say it. But I love okay. everybody. But I again, I love, you know, I'm a huge Eagles fan. I don't, you know, I know I, I, I get a lot of, and I still don't understand. Um, well, the dude, the dude doesn't like the Eagles. Well, the dude, but I'm like, listen, Joe Walsh, man. And I love Joe. No. Joe's one of my heroes. I had some really great interactions with him and he was wonderful. But uh, Glenn Fry is to me, he was an underrated guitar player and I love the Eagles. I don't care. Like, I don't As understand. Do I. <laughs> Randy do Meisner. Yeah, so I try to sneak in on any of the records that I'm producing or working on. I try to sort of put a little Easter egg into everything, even if the artist doesn't know. So I made a record with this wonderful artist, Carrie Powers. and We made two records together, and I threw in a little Randy Meisner, like harmony on this song, you know, where I did this ascending harmony. It was kind of take it to the limit, but it could have been something off of like uh, De- the Desperado album, like Certain Kind of Fool, something a little more you know, obscure, I guess. Well, you like layered vocals. I mean, it's obvious from, oh, yeah. from your influences. They, they, you know, I, there's a lot of, when I listen to layered vocals and harmonies, there's something, there's an imagery for me. It's like being in nature. And I, and I know that we'll get, we're probably going to talk about that, you know, but, um, I'm always trying to find a way to somehow bring the outdoors in or into the music because a lot of my heroes, the music, the artists I listen to, uh, you know, and John Denver too, and Michael Martin Murphy, a lot of my heroes are all from the seventies and they're all from, (laughs) most of them are from Colorado. So go figure. Um, But there's an imagery that they, they always, always seem to bring. And it, it kind of jump-started my love of, uh, of being outside and experiencing being outside and having real connection with it. So layered vocals do that for me because it's, it's kind of like heaven, if that makes any sense. It does. And this is probably a good time to get back to Harrison um, yeah, yeah. and your experience because you've done Songscapes for Sustain. Yep. Um, yep. So how did you get involved and, and what are sort of your priorities and focus and relationships to nature? Well, 
uh, yeah, so I've known Harrison for nearly 10 years now and Betsy for maybe half of that. Um, and I got to know Harrison through his band, Parsons Field. You know, we, I, I recorded them when they were just starting out. I mean, I see pictures, you know, from the studio from back then. I was recording on tape at the time and they were little kids. They were kids. Just, it's hilarious. And I knew that they had it, that they were all just so unique and so driven and such good people, you know, uh, good human beings. Uh, and I got, I've gotten to know some of their parents over time and it come, you know, you can see where it comes from. Uh, as a dad myself, it's important. I'm trying to instill, you know, certain core values in, in you know, into, into my daughter. And I like to think it's working, but when Harrison and Betsy started Sustain, I jumped on board immediately. I thought that, the, with, that what they were doing was a necessary thing. We needed it. Uh, and they were the ones to do it. And I knew that they were going to be able to do it just because of the, um, the work ethic and the desire and the drive. You know, they're real. It's a real, it's, it's proven. It's been around now for quite some time and it's a proven thing. So I jumped right on board immediately, um, and we did the first, uh, we did a Parsons Field song, uh, Katahdin. Um, that was the first thing we did. And then we did something with Jake Clark a few years later, and I followed, I followed their evolution ever since. You know, yeah, Jake's uh, been a guest on the pod. Yeah, that's right. I saw that. Yeah. Um, so I love that it just brings people together. I, I like... Um, I like seeing things connect, like the little dots being connected. And, and I just love what they're doing. I think it's important. And I've had, you know, I've had some plans over the years to, to make this place um, fully solar. I haven't been able to do it yet, but it's still on my list of things to do. Uh, I am, my, my carbon footprint here is still pretty light. And, um, you know, I, I like to think I do enough every day, at least, you know, my part so that I can, so it offsets. That's kind of how I look at life in general. You know, um, I run every day, so I get home and I carbo load. So if I carbo load, well, I got to turn that into fuel and I got to offset it somehow. So it all turns, you know, it's balance. All, it is, it's balance. It's a weird way of kind of getting to that point, but it is balance. And, um, you know, again, I'm trying to raise my, my daughter with, you know, that kind of knowledge and, and being outside. And I'm just doing your what I can. Your daughter's had a bit of, big effect on your career, right? Did, when she was younger, yep. you had some concerns about her health. And that we was did. part of your decision to really commit to the studio. Is that is that correct? It's everything, every reason. And it's uh, actually it was 10 years ago, 10 years ago this month. And it was out of out of left out of left field. We still we'll never really know, but it was uh she had um, contracted encephalitis somehow, and we don't know. And you know, I had the studio. I was I was doing my thing. You know, and I was committed to it. Not as committed as I would be later on. So she had to go through extensive um, physical therapy, and um, you know. It was like having to reboot something. You know, she was four years old and had to relearn how to walk, talk, how to put a fork to her mouth and how to speak. She's fine. She's a normal, your, your typical normal 13-year-old 
uh, girl now, you know, and it's an amazing thing. I, there's never a day, a minute, a second that goes by that I don't appreciate, you know, the outcome. But when she started to round the bend back then, when she was, you know, still four, and it was a few months in, I made the conscious decision to throw myself completely into this. Um, to show her that you can you can live your dream you can do the thing in life that you want to do but you've got to do it you know with your eyes open it takes a lot of work you have to find your place in all of it anybody can open a recording studio we know this there's nothing special about any of these things behind me i mean anybody can go and buy them you know i think it's it's how you use them how you you know you've got to find who you are and also the kind of person that you are and the kind of people that you want to surround yourself with. And, and I've built a bit of a force field around what I do. So there is a certain, like sort of certain demographic that I just don't really want to cater to or, or bother with. And, and that's delusion. Like I, I want to work with people that want to make music for what I would consider the right reasons. And that reason is because they need to make music and they have a song in their heart. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're chasing authenticity, and and I think that that. Uh, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's what it sounds like to me. And you want to work with artists who are in it for the art and and for the, the good in the art. I I ask all my guests these questions. So I, I these two questions, and I wanted to start uh, with nature. Is there a particular? Well, they're both nature questions, but. Is there a particular public land moment for you where it just, just, you just recall being completely awake in that moment in some kind of uh, environmental setting? Well, I have to tell you, I've had many of those throughout my life, you know, uh, as I imagine you certainly have, you know, uh, many, 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 but I have to tell you a few years ago, we were, we were actually, uh, you know, the Caribou Ranch open space. That to me, that is my, that's where I, I already told my wife, I said, and, and I don't want to talk about like my demise because I'd like to think it's, uh, you know, a long time from now. But um, I told my wife, uh, you know, when that time comes, that's where I want to be. Like, just bring me there and just, you know, let the breeze take me. I mean, it was, um, that's one of my favorite places in the world, Nederland, being up there. And uh, it's a, certainly a place that is near and dear to me. And being there and, and experiencing that place uh, had that profound effect on me, maybe more than any other. And, and I ex I've experienced a lot of it, you know, but it's definitely that place. And the other question I always ask my guests we end with is, um, is there a song, um, a particular song that comes to mind when you are having a real pleasant experience with nature, you know, that, that just the song yeah. is your very positive reminder or, or touch point. Easy. This to, is an easy nature. answer for me. And again, this is, we may as well just call this the Colorado show because everything, and I'm in new England right now. So every answer, but it's a very easy, it's a Dan Fogelberg song and it's called, it's a song called song from half mountain. Uh, which he actually wrote on, you know, about Half Mountain, that uh, the range, and it's there's something just so beautiful about the song. It's like it's like sitting outside on a day like it is now here, at least in New England, where it's uh, 
65 degrees, there's a slight breeze. Uh, all I hear is the wind and my own thoughts and some birds and a few bees. Music and nature and the best of it is created and recorded at Dirt Floor Studios under the guiding hand of Eric Lichter. I'm Charles Coplin, and you have been listening to Songscapes, a production of Sustain Music and Nature. For more, Google Sustain Music and Nature. <laughs>